uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. Hello out there on the internet. I am Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber. It's a hot and brutal summer across the world, a great time to cool off in an air-conditioned movie theater or catch up on some of those TV shows you've had on your list forever. But did you know the people who make the fine entertainment you know and love are on strike? Both the writers and actors are picketing, trying to get a fair shake out of the studios and companies that bet big on streaming and use that shift to screw over the workers who keep us all entertained. With us today to talk about it is stand-up comedian and consummate host and presenter Adam Conover. If you've been following the strike at all, you have probably seen some of his videos. If you're a fan of great TV or podcasts, you may see his various TV shows or listen to his Factually podcast. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You know, it was when I was a little boy, I only dreamed that I could one day be described as having various TV shows, that there'd be more than one. And that and that people was we're not even going to list them because there's a couple like that's that makes me feel that I've arrived. And I really appreciate you for that, man. Uh, Adam ruins everything, of course. Uh, and I, I wasn't trying to make you do it. And I'm no. Well, now I'm going to do it. I feel like I've been called out. <laughs> I feel like like, does this guy even know my work? That's how I that's how I feel right now. No, 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 no. No, what it was was a uh, my next guest needs no introduction. That that's that is the compliment that I feel that you paid me. I, I took it as no slight, sir. I've even seen. Uh, I saw you live in Texas in 2016 when you were wow. doing the uh, uh, these are the historical analogs to Trump tour. Yes, yes, that was, we did an Adam Ruins Everything election special, that was my sort of first, it was sort of like a stand-up, stand-up tour, but yeah, we toured to a bunch of cities, and then like two weeks after the tour ended, we taped it in LA, like a month before the election, it was one of the craziest things I've ever done, and now it's unwatchably irrelevant, because (laughs) it's a lot of comedy that I wrote the moment before Trump was elected, right, that's like, that's like watching a stand-up special that came out a day before 9-11. You're like, why do I give a shit what someone <laughs> who, who lives in the naive past believes? It is, <laughs> it's, so, it's so funny. I was pulling up um, – I was trying to read something about uh, uh, like, like some cultural event that happened in 2016. Oh, that's what it was. I was looking up uh, Oki from Muskogee for oh, reasons sure. related to country music we don't have to get into here. Um, but the first article I, I, I happened upon was from 2016 and the opening, like two thirds of it are just about Trump. Um, and it's like, this is not what I was looking for. This is not yeah, what I needed. Sometimes, you know, one of my very favorite com- comics, Patton Oswalt recorded a, a wonderful special a couple of years ago in like 2017 about grief. It was very personal. It's like a really, he had a lot of beautiful things to say and I love him so much, but the special opens with 20 minutes of straight up Trump material of just like, Oh, can you believe this guy? And it's great jokes, but I tried to watch again last year. Cause I was like, I want to, I want to see, uh, I want to see this material. And it was like, Oh, this part, I don't want to see it. It aged right like now, milk, you know? Like, yeah. Uh, you know? Yeah. yeah. But that's, uh, look, that's what comedy does. Comedy, comedy is of its moment and of its time. And it, it relies upon a shared headspace that can only ever be fleeting. You know, in 40 years, uh, there'll be, politics nerds that like now they'd be wearing Barry Goldwater pins and smiling and reading Rick Perlstein books, <laughs> all that stuff will come back around. The th- so we'll get there eventually, but that's not what I'm we're sure. here to talk to about today. Uh, so I-, I like to get basics out of the way at the beginning. And I also like to think of my parents 
So when my mom sends me a text inevitably in the next couple of weeks that says, why aren't my shows coming back? Um, <laughs> what would you say to her? What is going on? I mean, I'd say you got to, ma'am, you, you switch over to the news. You, you haven't been watching the national news <laughs> because uh, we, we are writers and actors are on strike together. Um, the writers guild, I'm a member of both unions. The writers guild went on strike uh, on May 1st or 2nd, depending on how you want to count it. Um, and uh, we've been on strike for over 80 days now, but now just last week, the, the screen actors guild uh, sag after also called a strike. It's the first time both unions or, or both writers and actors have been together on strike since 1960. Um, which was one of the most historic negotiations in, in labor history for reasons we can get into. Uh, and there, we're not making any shows or movies uh, anymore uh, until the companies come back to the table and make a fair deal. What exactly are the union's demands? Well, they're complex and they're, they're different depending on which uh, union you're talking about. Writers and actors have different issues. Um, so uh, it's a little bit hard to talk about without talking about the fundamental changes in the industry. I mean, uh, essentially... The companies unilaterally changed the way the entertainment industry works, um, and they changed it in ways that have sucked money out of the pockets of everyone who makes the content, not just writers and actors, but literally everyone, everyone on up to the executive producers um, who are often you know, rich, but less rich than they used to be. And they've concentrated that wealth instead in the pockets of the CEOs and of the investor class, I suppose, although you might make the argument that they're also ripping off the investor class. Uh, so, um, that's, uh, they've done this over the last five or 10 years. They've done it, um, by changing the business and also by exploiting loopholes in our contracts uh, or creating loopholes, frankly, um, that, uh, undermine our wages and working conditions that, that, um, make our work more precarious and, uh, uh, make us less well paid for doing so. And, you know, there's multiple examples that I could get into, but that's the, that's the general pattern. And so we are fighting for, uh, contract provisions that will, uh, reify certain things into our contract that um, the country, companies are trying to end, such as the writer's room, um, that will uh, add additional protections. Uh, and then uh, also we're seeking increasingly a, a form of some form of revenue sharing when the shows do well in success. Um, the thing that we won in 1960 was uh, our pension and health plans. Uh, and then also the existence of residual payments, which are payments that in linear television and in film you receive every time the material that you created is run. Um, that doesn't exist in streaming. And so one of the things that we are asking for um, is participation in the same way, a new form of participation for a new media. But, uh, uh, you know, something that means that when they make money, we make money. I want to back way up. Uh, is there's been some reporting on this recently? Like I think the the Brian Merchant article in L.A. Times that you're interviewed in came out today, um, yeah. and I think this is a really interesting. As the economics of what's going on, I think is a really interesting aspect of this, and it's incredibly important to understanding why this is happening. I think has been not talked about quite as much. Um, so, and it's all tied into all this stuff we talk about on Motherboard all the time. So for for the last like twenty years, we've lived in this wonderful world of uh, zero interest rates effectively for a lot of businesses. And at the same time, these tech revolutions, we're told, one of those revolutions being streaming, um, of which Netflix was the primary benefactor and also like the chaos agent that pushed everything forward. Um, but we're in this world where 
like this, the interest rates are going up, things aren't looking as as wonderful as and rosy as they once did, and maybe these streaming services weren't actually making as but as much money as we thought they were. Maybe the economics of this doesn't work out. Um, I think you I think you told Merchant. Uh, that Netflix has been lying to us and to Wall Street for years. Is that right? Yes, that's the case. Although this is a this is a nuanced argument because if you make it the wrong way, you can accidentally end up repeating what is frankly company propaganda. Um, so he, here's what happened: uh, Netflix fundamentally lied to the public. They they created a false expectation of what they could provide. They told the product, they told the public that you can cancel your cable subscription and instead you can spend $15 a month to watch any show ever made in perpetuity ad-free. That was the pledge to the customers, right? That we you know everything's available on Netflix, you'll never have to watch an ad. Now, uh that is not a business model for an entire industry, right? It might be a small, a scaled down version of that might be a business model for a single company, such as HBO, right? HBO's plan, you can watch as much as you want. There's never an ad. It's 15 bucks a month. They don't claim to have every piece of content ever made, but, you know, it does semi-work. Um, the problem is that every other company, uh, because of the frenzy around Netflix and Wall Street and Silicon Valley, started chasing Netflix's business model. And ended up destroying good business models in the pursuit. You know, the they, uh, linear TV was always going to go down, but they didn't need to put a gun to its head, which is what they did. You know, I, I used to make a show for True TV, right? True TV, TBS, TNT, those used to be three different networks that made lots of content that people liked. They had different identities, right? They assassinated those three networks. They no longer exist. They no longer do original programming. They just have reruns. Um, and that content instead is made for HBO Max. It wasn't necessary to fully destroy the business model because lots of people are still watching linear television. Um, that, that's the first thing. But, but second of all, these companies quickly topped out in terms of uh, in terms of their subscribers. So Netflix is already topped out in America. They they cannot get more $15 a month subscribers. They are fighting churn every single month. So what do they do? Well, they create an ad-supported tier, right? They're adding ads back in. What are they going to do next? Uh, well, these companies are competing for live sports. Look at Apple TV. They've got Major League Soccer. And what else do they do? They do pregame, postgame, and wraparound coverage, right? What are these companies going to want next? They're going to want talk shows. They're going to want local news. They're going to want everything else that television has. Um, and also, what are they going to do to fight churn? Well, why is it? Why do I still have an HBO Max subscription when I've unsubscribed from everything else? Because it's because it's part of my cable package, right? It's an extra phone call to unsubscribe. So they'll start bundling it. You know, you'll start getting these services free with your Verizon subscription or whatever. Uh, the companies are all competing for live sports. What are they going to want next? They're going to want local news. They're going to want uh, every other piece of TV that people love. And what are they going to do to fight churn? They're going to make it harder to unsubscribe from the services. So they'll probably start bundling them together. You'll you know, get a bundle with three or four at a time, or maybe it'll be tied to your cell phone plan. These companies are going to recreate cable TV um, after this sort of five years in the wilderness while they were all chasing a business model that didn't quite work. Um, the problem is if we overemphasize the, you know, the fact that they blew up a successful business model, chase an unprofitable one, it can uh, support this sort of company argument that the whole industry is doing badly and therefore they can't afford to pay labor properly. And that's never been true. The companies have continued to be profitable. Netflix is posting profits every single year. They're going up and up and up. Uh, revenues are up for the entire industry and show budgets are up. But writer producers, for instance, are making 23 percent less than we were 10 years ago. Um, and so 
there's no reason that, you know, even though the, the, they fucked the business model that we should, uh, you know, accept their pleas of poverty when they're currently profitable. And they're also racing back into profitability despite uh, the misadventures of the past couple of years. So they're returning to the business. They're kind of settling back into an old business model that works. And at the same time, they kind of figure, well, all those old contracts, we're doing streaming now. It's different. Uh, it requires a different kind of pay scale for writers and actors and everyone else involved. Well, you guys don't need the residuals that you used to get. Is that kind of what's going on? Pretty much. I mean, uh, you know, it's an unfortunate fact of, you know, I guess the way labor contracts work, the way our original contract was written, that we have to fight again every time there's a new medium to get it covered. You know, so there's these periodic fights where, you know, first there was the fight for coverage of television and then of cable television. Right. And then if you remember the, the writer's strike in 2007 and eight, that was a fight for coverage of streaming, period. That was what we won. And we only won it because we went on strike. They did not want to give it because they knew if they went to a, if they created a whole new medium. Medium and that wasn't mandatorily unionized, they could break the unions forever. And we didn't let them do that. Um, and now, basically, we're going back to get the money. Now that the whole segment is extremely mature and profitable, uh, we're going to get the money. And so, yeah, we have different formulas for residuals in streaming, depending on what kind of streaming it is and what kind of show it is. But what unites them is that they are a small percentage of what was received by folks um, on linear television uh, for, for hits of equivalent size. And I've heard this described as um, in 2007, it didn't look like streaming was going to be quite as big as it was. And so when those residual rights were negotiated, uh, things were kind of given up that maybe now were a bad call, right? Uh, I would say that there were, uh, yeah, uh, there's a number of reasons why the residuals formulas are not as good as they should have been. Um, and the main one is uh, that while the Writers Guild was on strike um, the in 2008, uh, the Directors Guild made a deal with the AMPTP um, that, you know, covered, it used the leverage of the Writers Guild to get coverage of streaming. Um, and uh, and also negotiated residuals rates that were lower than what the Writers Guild wanted. But at that point, the strike had dragged on for a while, and there was a lot of pressure to simply take the DGA deal. And so it was a bit of a it was a victory, but it was a bit of a you know there was a battle, a further battle that could have been won. Um, this year, the guilds, by the way, are far more united. Uh, the DGA has made a deal, but there isn't any pressure to take that deal. Um, and both the Writers Guild and SAG after are, are united behind getting, uh, uh, you know, getting this problem taken care of. Um, I think, though, that the companies knew exactly how big streaming was going to be the entire time. Um, and that's because. You know, this is sort of part of Writers Guild lore. If you look at, uh, you know, they, they kept saying to us, oh, we're not, we don't want to put shows on the internet. We don't want to do that. That's an experiment. We have no idea. What's that going to be? And then literally a couple weeks after uh, the deal was closed, um, they launched Hulu. Like, <laughs> like after the strike ended, they launched Hulu, uh, which was, you know, a multi-employer consortium of companies that was just putting up episodes of The Office and The Daily Show online free to watch. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it, it, I, I think they always knew what and this was always the plan. And uh, another aspect of this is that the the guilds have learned from that, learned that lesson um, and decided to get in front of artificial intelligence. Right. Mm -hmm. And the studios right. don't even want to fucking talk about that. Mm -hmm. What's going on there? How big a threat do you think AI is to your profession? So, first of all, I, I'd like to flag that 
AI is a marketing term that describes a loose bundle of technologies at best, but more likely now just means any tech guy who wants you to do what he says, right, will say that he has AI. And it's getting so good and it's getting ever even better every day. And so it's going to take your job unless you do what I tell you to do, right? Um, but, uh, you know, we're talking about multiple technologies, some of which are frankly just good VFX, right? <laughs> um, so, so let's talk about that piece. Um, actors are, in fact, under threat from the technologies that are being labeled AI. Um, these are technologies that allow uh, some of the pieces of software to duplicate the performance or likeness of an actor without the consent of that actor. There's been a specific example of this where Apple used voice prints of uh, SAG after audiobook narrators um, to narrate new audiobooks without paying them additionally. And they did this under, you know, there's one of those clauses in the contract. We own the rights to your performance in all media, future, or universal throughout the known, you know, millennia or whatever, throughout the multiverse. Like this is like sort of boilerplate stuff. And they said, oh, because of that, we get to own your voice print, right? And this was the sort of canary in the coal mine for SAG after going, oh, holy fuck, this is, we need to take care of this right now. Um, and so, you, you know, there are real concerns. One of the AMPTP's actual proposals that they thought was like a compromise proposal to SAG-AFTRA was that background actors would be paid half a day or a day's wages, be scanned into a so-called AI, and then that likeness and performance would be usable by the company in perpetuity, long after the background actor is dead. For, you know, a couple hundred bucks, they would get to own this. It was $187, if, I think. There you go. One hundred and eighty seven dollars. Um, and and let's be clear, they probably did this because they thought that sag after would not stand up for background actors because background actors are the, some of the lowest paid members of the guild. However, background actors are a very important part of sag after constituency. And it's something that you can make a living at. You know, it's it's not a great living. It's uh, uh, but it is, you know, it is honest work, you know, to, to and it, the, these are professionals who, you know, know how to take instructions, know how to deal with the camera, et cetera. It, it takes it takes a skill and experience to do it um and you know the union said fuck you and, and you know repeated that at a press conference that, that proposal and and you know folks were so uh, offended it sort of went viral in the news coverage um so that, that is a real threat to actors that they need taken care of now i think the threat to writers is a little bit different and this is kind of my own personal opinion um my own analysis of this but um, when we're talking about AI with writing, we're talking about large language models and large language models are, again, are a specific piece of technology that do one specific thing. Right. What a large language model does is you put words in one end and it gives you words out the other end that look like a plausible response to the words that you put in. Right. As best it can. And it does this by ingesting huge amounts of, of material and making something that resembles, you know, the melange that it it, it sucked down. Um, that is not writing, right? And, and the reason that's not writing, I'm not going to say it's all oh, the spark of creativity or any of that bullshit. It's because it's literally not what a writer does. A writer does literally does not simply output text. <laughs> Being a writer, at least in our industry, and, and Matthew, you're a writer too. I, I think you probably have your own version of it, but this is for being a writer in our industry. It means 
uh, taking the national mood and having, you know, a thought that here's something that this speaks to, right? It, it, it involves making a convincing argument to an executive about why your idea is going to be successful. It means taking notes from that executive, talking to them on the phone, taking their feedback. It means talking to the actor because they don't like their lines, talking to the director because it doesn't match his vision. Then it involves going to set and telling, oh, saying, oh, hold on a second. The way you read this line, it actually sounds like it means the opposite of what we meant. So we need to adjust the line a little bit because otherwise people are going to be confused. Then it means going to the edit, going to post-production and saying, "Uh oh, the episode is five minutes too long. And so what what can, what five minutes can we cut out where the episode is still going to make sense? Oh, here's what we can do. We can write a little line of ADR, ADR dialogue for the actor to read later, and that'll sort of cinch everything up and the whole thing will be intelligible if we do it that way. That's writing. Writing is not just outputting words onto a page. You have to be, you know, it, it's it's an easy mistake to make. You have to be kind of ignorant or maybe stupid about what writing entails to believe this. And many people are ignorant or, and stupid, and that's not their fault. Um, but unfortunately, among their ranks are the people who run the companies that we work for. Uh, they, they do not understand what it is to be a writer. People who work for them do, like our immediate, you know, people, we, the creative executives at the companies who we work with on a day-to-day basis, they understand what a writer is because they need one, right, in order to get get a script that's going to make their boss happy. But the, but the people at the top are just like, those are just uh, monkeys who bang out words. Right. And so there are, they are liable to be sold a bill of goods by the tech industry that the tech industry will come to them and say, Hey, we got the new hot shit. It's called AI. Forget about crypto. Forget about the metaverse. It's AI now. And if you give us a hundred million dollars, we will give you an AI system that will write all your scripts for you and you won't need writers anymore. Right. And one of these companies might try that. They might get sold that monorail and they might try it. And uh, it's going to fail because the audience will hate it. It'll produce bad work and they'll need writers anyway. But the fear is that it is going to hurt a lot of writers when they do try, that they're going to take some script an AI wrote and they're going to say, hey, uh, take this script the AI wrote and can you punch it up, talk to the actor, talk to the director, go to go to set and, uh, you know, uh, make sure it's it's cut short enough for time. Oh, but you're not going to be credited as a writer because the AI wrote it. You're just some kind of fucking producer. Right. Right. That's. That is the fear. And and so we have particular provisions in our contract to stop them from doing it. It's this complete misunderstanding. Like you said, it's this complete misunderstanding of what the job actually is, that the yeah. word calculator can replicate all of that stuff. Uh, and it can't. And it never will. It, like, there's going to be AI shows. You're right. Uh, and they're going to be a disaster. Um, yeah. And like, I don't know if you saw this week the uh, the company that was pitching its machine that makes South Park episodes. Did you see this oh, yeah. thing? Yeah. Yeah. And, and by the way, I'm, I would fully expect, you know, knowing Trey Parker and Matt Stone, not personally, but knowing something of them, I have a feeling they're going to love this thing and be like, let's l- like, let's make some fucking weird AI shit. I just, I saw They've, it and I was like, I just feel like they're going to be into it. They already did. They did that last season. They had, uh, they had a script that was Never partially watched. written by Chad GPT. It was terrible. Yeah, sure. But that yeah, was the, the but that was the joke was that it was terrible, yeah. right? Right. I saw well, yes, I saw the South Park thing by this company, and it's yeah, it's shit, right? It's not funny. It sounds like a vague, you know. Uh, but sorry, what was the point you were making? I don't know. I don't know anymore. This stream's <laughs> completely off the rails. Um, what? Yeah, I, I, I mean, uh, you know, there's a possibility that this form of content could exist as some sort of lowest level chum, right, in the media ecosystem, right? That this is like, I mean, which Twitch, frankly, already is, you know? Like, people who are watching Twitch, 
Uh, they just want, I, I think for the most part, want something on in the background that they can have on while they're doing their homework, right? That's low impact, low effort. And by the way, the company pays nothing for it, right? That's the difference between YouTube and Twitch and the big media companies. The big media companies pay to have a high quality product. The tech companies say, we get all our content for free and you like some of it and that's good enough for us, right? Yep. And so will some company make some AI thing that like just shits out a stream of whatever or you can type a couple prompts into it and it gives you a customized stream of whatever and will some people watch that because they can't afford to go to the movies and they just want a little bit of company at night? Maybe. But that is not going to replace movies or television and nor is it going to be able to do the work of a movie or television writer. We've already and we already had this a few years ago with the uh, I don't remember I don't know if you remember the uh, on YouTube there was the auto generated uh, videos for children where they would kind of mix oh, yeah. in like Spider Man and Elsa that's what they're talking about doing essentially yeah. right but trying to sell it to adults as well as children um, yeah and frankly children's content is one of the few areas where like this could be really pernicious because yeah i mean like stuff like coco melon you watch and you're like did a person make this like it is hard to it's hard to tell it's you know it's just uh it's a lava lamp for kids you know and uh, i think ai could make a lava lamp right but i don't think it can write a joke because can, if i could just opine for one more second every every joke that has to I, this is what i know as a comedian Every joke that makes people laugh on some level has to be a new joke. Like it, you really have to come like the, the, the art of writing a joke is thinking, who am I and who is my audience? Who is the specific group of people that is watching this and what just happened? How do they feel right now? And what can I say that will connect what they feel right now to some previous experience in their life? You know, Ted Cruz did something weird. Okay. What, experience everybody what is this what do people how do people feel about ted cruz and what does this remind them of right that's how you write a daily show joke or whatever right or you know there's uh if you're abbott elementary what is it like to be a teacher and how does that connect to my audience right that is what it that is perhaps the most complex possible social thing to have to do is to write a joke that makes other people laugh it's very very difficult and um until they literally invent data from star trek and AI will never be able to do it. It need to be literally an auto, an artificial general intelligence. And if they invent that, we've got bigger problems than you know who's writing late night comedy. Yeah, I mean that's a whole separate episode of the of the Cyber Show. Would be an artificial general intelligence. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Tell me yeah. about, let's switch tracks. Tell me about conditions on the picket line. Um, yeah. So... There was a big story uh, a couple days ago that we covered. Uh, you know, SAG filed for unfair labor practice against Universal after it trimmed trees on a picket line without a permit. What the fuck is going on? Yes. Uh, so Universal Studios 
the Writers Guild also filed that that uh, petition for what it's worth um, because it's it's mostly been affecting our picketers. Uh, the you, you know we picket in front of Universal Studios um, and they have taken a really hostile approach. Uh, they have uh, almost immediately after after we began, they started a sidewalk construction project all up and down the streets. Like literally, all the sidewalks are blocked off, and they did not put in. You know, if you're if you're in most cities when that happens, you know they put the little scaffolding out there so that you know to separate the uh, the the pedestrians. They didn't do that, and so it's an extremely unsafe situation. The LAPD has told them to install railings. The city has t- told them to install railings. They still haven't done it. Um, and then they also did this hack job on the trees that were shading, uh, uh, you know, d- pedestrians as they walked. Um, and you know, every horticulturalist arborist says that this was a bad pruning, um, and there was no permit issued. And they actually, it's been kind of a fun story for us because they ended up incurring the wrath of the LA city government, which is, uh, really a wonderful thing, you know, that, that now someone, someone at universal, it was just like, screw these picketers. And now they are getting phone calls from like the LA city controller's office, um, like looking to levy fines against them. It's uh, very, very nice. And it's uh, why, why it's nice to have city government on your side. What, what do you make of the claims by some of the executives that they're going to be able to starve people out, that they're going to get this thing going until October when people start losing their apartments and they're unable to eat. So this was a scare tactic that the companies put out two days before SAG-AFTRA called it strike. Um, and this is the way that they normally operate. This has been their playbook since the mid-2000s when, when there's a labor issue. What they do is they say nothing officially in the press. Instead, the studio executives uh, anonymously call reporters and say shit like that. You know, they, they – uh, and they can get those calls because the reporters, you know, uh, of the trade press are generally company aligned because the entire uh, uh, advertising supporting comp- sites like Deadline, Hollywood Reporter, Variety, it's all uh, for your consideration ads. Um, that is like literally all that keeps those companies afloat, and so they're inclined to be company friendly. And so then the company executives call and say, yeah, on background, um, yeah, we're going to starve the writers out. We're going to starve them to death, and we're going to uh, let them hang out out there until they've lost their homes and apartments. That's literally what happened. Multiple people called a reporter at deadline and told them this. Um, but here's the thing. This is an old playbook. This is what they used to do in 2007 before social media. Um, what happened this time is that that was so ghoulish. People thought that was so heinous to say that about your own workforce that it went ultra viral. It enraged our membership. Um, it enraged the membership of other unions because they said they wanted to starve us out because they thought that the other unions would take too much solidarity and strength if we were to win. Um, and uh, uh, it, it, it produced an outpouring of public support for the guild. Like We raise money for a fund called the Entertainment Community Fund, which is a longstanding nonprofit here in L.A. That, uh, and in New York that uh, you know, helps uh, writers and actors and crew members who are on hard times, especially during an event like a strike. So we're raising money for them. That that fund got an outpouring of donations after this article dropped because people were so horrified because these companies were literally saying they wanted to make us homeless. Um, and so it was a major miscalculation on their part. Um, and so uh, that's mostly what I do is I laugh at it and I say well, they fucked up by saying that because <laughs> it only strengthened our resolve. Another aspect of this I think is pretty interesting and I wanted to get your opinion on is this rise recently in the last like 10 years or so of influencers uh, mm-hmm. and the kind of the replacement or the shifting of the culture from 
like commercial actors to companies using influencers. Uh, and, you know, we also saw it kind of tangential to this. We also saw Disney for its Haunted Mansion premiere parading cosplayers down the red carpet for the, for that event because part of uh, the strike is actors can't promote any work. Um, Correct. If you're a cosplayer or an influencer uh, and you're working right now, are you a scab? <laughs> um, look, this is a uh, this is an area where, you know, SAG after put out guidelines about, um, it, you know, what they're asking influencers to refrain from. It's a little bit fast moving. They've been updating the guidelines. Right. And I want to be clear about something. Scab is the strongest word in the labor vocabulary. It is something that we do not use lightly. Sometimes people overuse it to mean anybody who does anything, you know, uh, not supporting a union. And and that's not the case. A scab is someone who takes the job of a striking worker. Um, Frankly, uh, I, I think that scab may be a little bit strong. For, you know, some people are there are people throwing the word around in on social media in ways I don't like saying, oh, if a podcaster is doing a critical episode about a movie that recently came out, that that is scabbing, you know, or that reviewing films is scabbing. I don't believe it is. Um, uh, I I think that, you know, for influencers who are listening to this, uh, you should be consulting with SAG-AFTRA about the particular thing that you're looking to do, and you should be making your own decision about your own comfort level and what you think is supportive and what is not. I think what's I think what the the main thing the union wants to avoid is exactly what you're talking about, is companies going to the influencers and paying them money to promote the films. Right. Doing a brand deal with them because they cannot get, uh, you know, hey, here here I am at the Boppenheimer premiere with my pink shit. And thank you, Barbie, for all the free swag and the five thousand dollars. Right. If you do that kind of work, um, you're violating SAG strike rules. And if you're not a member, the penalty is that they that they won't allow you admission into SAG in the future, which would affect your ability to take actual acting roles. If that is something that's a goal of yours and not just acting, but also appearances of any kind, um, you know, like hosting a television show or whatever. So I would I would advise not doing it um, if you are a, uh, you know, a, a mutual friend of ours at a, at a you know podcast that reviews older pieces of media that one of our companies make reached out to me and said, hey, do you think we should stop doing our podcast? And I was like, I, I think this is probably between you and your conscience, you know, um, and your and what your audience thinks is OK, honestly. Um, and, 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 you know, in between, there's a lot of gray and uh, you have to look for it yourself. Um, but the, the primary rule is, do I feel that I am doing the work of somebody who's on strike? That is the difference between scabbing or not. Um, and you, by the way, you may not feel that you are and you might be actually doing it um, uh, there. So, uh, yeah, that, that that's the long answer to uh, what's a pretty complicated question. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that that's uh, and then we're thinking about doing like a whole episode just about this. Uh, but I kind of wanted to pick your brain about it because we have seen some influencers have already come out and said like, hey, we were offered this. We're not taking any of this kind of work anymore, solidarity. Um, but, you know, I'm, we're, we are also seeing influencers that are going to the Bar- Barbenheimer premieres and have taken the pink swag. Uh, yeah. So it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nuanced, gray, strange world that we're, we're living in now, right? It, it is. And so, like, this is, I, I feel like this strike that we're seeing is one part of a big uh, change 
that's that that's taking place in our culture, right? Uh, do you? Why do you think? You know, we've all we've also got the we've we've got other labor movements that are going on right now. Um, you kind of zooming out a little bit, kind of here at the end of our chat. Uh, you know, obviously the Teamsters and UPS. Uh, I believe right before we hopped on, uh, negotiations are going to resume Monday. No strike quite yet. Uh, obviously, journalism is is in need of good, strong unions. Uh, staring directly at the camera. Uh, why do you think all this labor stuff is in the air right now? Are we all just getting fucked over and we're tired of it? Yes, I think that's the reason. Uh, I, mean, I think the company's pushed too far. Um, I'll, I'll start by talking about what's happened in Hollywood um, and and use that to explain the broader culture, um, which is that you know we've been operating under an anti-labor regime in Hollywood, as in the rest of America, since the 80s. Um, the, the Hollywood unions used to negotiate one by one against the different studios. We go to Warner brothers and we go to Fox, et cetera. Um, in the eighties, what happened is the union uh, is the companies teamed up into an organization called the AMPTP and they put together a plan to reduce labor power. And what it is, is they, they spread propaganda that made people think that it was never good to strike, that you'd always lose more than you'd gain from striking. They convinced most of the town of that. Um, and then uh, they used uh, the more company-friendly unions to contain the more militant unions. So, for instance, the Writers Guild um, uh, historically is a militant union that has used the strike threat. And so what the companies do is they negotiate with the weaker unions first and then try to impose that deal onto the Writers Guild. And when that doesn't work, they hold us off when we go on strike and they uh, uh, they then negotiate with the weaker unions. They try to uh, impose that deal on us during the strike. Um, and that's been very, very effective by doing that you know occasionally we've been able to break out of that box as we did in 2007 and get coverage of uh, the internet but mostly it helped them keep their labor costs you know tidy little two percent rise a year whatever it is that they want you know um unfortunately it worked too well uh the gap got too large uh people started to feel that not only are they not getting a fair share they literally cannot make a living their careers are disappearing and so what you've seen is the other unions in town, other than the Writers Guild, self-radicalize, and you've seen their memberships start, uh, you know, badgering their 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 leaderships to say, "Why aren't we being more militant?" I mean, one of the reasons SAG-AFTRA is on strike is from the first day that the Writers Guild hit the picket line, you had SAG-AFTRA actors marching with us, and they were there every single day. And every time their leadership said something that was a little bit conciliatory to the, towards the companies, the the SAG-AFTRA members would come back and and say very strongly to their leadership, "No, no, no." We want you to fight. And the result is that we're now on strike together. The AMPTP was not able to make under their structure, which is designed to, you know, they're the no machine. That's their job is to say no as much as possible. They were not able to give SAG-AFTRA a deal that prevented them from going on strike. And now they are for the first time in 63 years. And it's historic and it's truly paradigm breaking. Like, I believe that we are entering a new you know, it's a realignment moment where we are, you know, the, the 80s, the Reagan moment was one realignment. This is another, at least in Hollywood, um, because, uh, you know, this the, the sag after going on strike changes everything. And it's a it's a moment where the balance of power shifts. And I think the same thing is happening across the country that, um, you know, the companies ever since the labor revolution of, you know, the late 19th, early 20th century culminating in the New Deal era in the 40s and 50s. I know my Rick Perlstein, too. Uh, you know, the company started. 
they started fighting back. You know, they they said, okay, well, they came up with a with a cohesive plan that allowed them to blunt and erode the power of unions, and they had more money and therefore more power, and they were able to execute it successfully, and they've executed it too well. And we now live in a country where we've got record low unemployment. Like the numbers are, what is it, three percent or some shit? But people can't afford a place to live. They can't afford to put their kids through college. They can't afford a medical bill. They don't have emergency funds, even though everybody is working. Um, and that's an untenable situation, and people are realizing that. So Teamsters, you know, they, they may go on strike because they have they have a new leadership. Their, their, their members had a historic political revolution and installed new leadership that would be more militant. Other unions are doing the same. And on our picket line every day, there's workers coming up to me saying, hey, I'm from an ununionized part of the industry. They're a choreographer. They're a post-production worker. They're a music supervisor. They're a PA. These are all people who don't have unions. And they are wearing a T-shirt that they had made because they are trying to form a union themselves, just like the Writers Guild did 90 years ago. Um, and so I think we are in a pivotal moment where everything is changing for labor in America. Adam, do I need to let you go or can I ask you one more question? I got time for one more. Got quite time for one more. All right. So at the beginning of this conversation, we started off with my, a hypothetical text from my mother. Um, if she were then to follow up and say, I was, if I were to explain all this to her and say, you know, like all these things and she says, all right, well, what am I supposed to do about it? Does that mean I can't watch law and order right now? What do I tell her? What a beautiful setup. Thank you so much. Um, so look, the Writers Guild and SAG-AFTRA are not calling for a boycott of the companies right now. Um, and the reason for that is a boycott is weaker than a strike. You, you, it is very hard to effectively organize a mass boycott of, of most people. It's hard to get your message to enough people for it to make a difference, right? Our power lies in our membership and our withholding our labor. That is our theory of change. That is how we are going to make change. Now, if anybody at home feels, you know what? I don't feel comfortable subscribing to Hulu right now. I feel like canceling my membership. Go fucking nuts. You know, like, please, I, if you if you call that solidarity, I do, too. Right. Um, but there's some there's some ways that we are specifically asking people to help. Uh, of course, you can be supportive on social media. Very helpful. Uh, we ask you to uh, be aware of and to follow our strike rules to not do the work of a striking uh, union member. And uh, finally, uh, you can donate to the Entertainment Community Fund. This is a fund that I mentioned before that helps writers, actors, crew members, people like that on hard times, especially during the strike. Every dollar you donate there goes to a, uh, a, 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 a an entertainment worker who is in need, who needs help paying their bills, their medical bills, their housing. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that allows us to stay on the picket line longer and it helps us win. And more importantly, it, it helps folks who, who need the help. Um, so it, and their website is uh, entertainmentcommunity.org. Adam Conover, thank you so much for coming onto the Cyber Podcast and Twitch stream and walking us through this. If people want to see you, uh, where where are you going to be doing your stand up in the next well, couple of days? Uh, thank you so much. I'm uh, right now in uh, Baltimore doing shows at Magoobie's Joke House. Uh, if you're listening to this around the 20th, 20th or 20, uh, 21st or 22nd of July. Next weekend, um, July uh, t- uh, 27th or 29th, I'll be in Buffalo, New York at the Buffalo Helium. And then uh, later in October, I'm in uh, St. Louis, Missouri and Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, AdamConover.net for tickets and tour dates. Thank you for asking. Adam, thank you so much once again for coming onto the show. If you like us, if you really like us, we are, and you're listening to the podcast, we are doing this show live. Uh, most of the time, it's on Fridays at 11 a.m. Eastern. 
Uh, we 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 tweaked the schedule a little bit this week to make room for Adam because uh, he's out there doing the hard work talking to people on the picket lines. Um, thank you for tuning in. We are streaming on twitch.tv forward slash vice. And hey, did you know that me, Matthew, has another show uh, that you could listen to unconnected to this one? It's called Angry Planet. It covers international affairs and war and conflict. If you've ever wanted to know the connection between Bitcoin and mega prisons in Latin America, wanted to hear the human stories from the front lines of Ukraine, or wondered about the seemingly medieval way Putin runs his court, look for Angry Planet wherever you get your podcasts. Adam, thank you so much once again for coming on. I'm going to take us out. Thank you so much for having me. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.